We're going to start and jump into um, an overview of, of Revelation. We're going to spend several weeks doing this because we, uh, I feel like, and I'll tell you why in a minute, why we're going to do it this way. Uh, just so everybody, um, in case you are interested and you are a reader, um, I have several books here that I think would give you a, a really good um, starting place for, the, for this particular subject. Two of the better ones, one is a very high-level view by uh, Vern Poitras called The Return of the Returning King. It's very easy to read, very quick, high-level overview, so you're not going to get bogged down in a lot of Greek terms and a lot of eschatological argumentation. He just gives you a really crisp, clean understanding of the overview of Revelation. Another one that is back in print that you guys may want to consider is More Than Conquerors by William Hendrickson. Um, This is a quote-unquote classic. It is also a high-level overview. It's not deeply theological, but it is. So it's an easier read, huh? More than conquerors, an interpretation of the book of Revelation. More than conquerors. You're welcome. The returning king. Yeah. And then two very specific books that are considered two of the better ones on the market for uh, eschatology in general are The Bible in the Future by Anthony Hokema. And uh, The Promise of the Future by Cornelius P. Venema. Um, And both of these are regarded as the pinnacle of um, reformed, the reformed eschatological view. So you're not going to get a lot of dispensationalism. And we'll talk about what all that means as we go along. Because it's very important that we understand several things before we dive in. So we're going to spend some time going over this. We're going to talk about hermeneutic. I know don't let the word scare you. We'll explain it all. We're going to take the time to go through it. Um, We're not in a hurry to get through this course. Um, And as you can see, I was asked to kind of tone down the jargon, so I came up with this title. (laughs) You're welcome. Eschatological Metanarrative, um, and the reason that I chose this particular title for this is because I think there are several reasons why the book of Revelation is a very, very difficult book, even though it's not, okay? Um, there are factors externally that men and their intelligence and their really their godly their desire to pursue godliness that have heaped and layered on the book of revelation to make it very very complicated all right so just for example just to give you an overview there is a sorry there is a theory that the old testament um eden Christ. Okay. Yeah. So there's a, there's a theory that goes from Eden to, to the return of Christ. We have the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is primarily about Israel. Okay. I'm writing Israel under here. Then Jesus comes back, right? And then we have the day of Pentecost. 
here, right? Christ ascends. I probably misspelled that one. I always have a hard time with that word. Ascension. And then you have here, and then you have return of Christ. And what do we call this age here? This is the New Testament time period. What do we call this age? Most church age, right? Church age. I'm writing fast. I don't know why. Church age. Okay. Now, this is a very simple diagram, right? But wait. Because there is a theory out there that suggests that this here is one dispensation. It is the dispensation that God is dealing with the nation of Israel. And that is his first and foremost intention. That redemption... A, 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 a length of time by which God deals in a particular way with a particular set of goals in mind, okay? That's the simple knocked-down version. So this is the dispensation of the redemption of Israel, okay? And they look forward to the coming of the Messiah, right? So God is directly dealing with Israel here. So this is, this is a old covenant, Right? So, Jesus came to fulfill the eschatological, forward-looking view of the Old Testament, right? Well, the Jews had other plans. They reject the Messiah. So, as a secondary, truly a plan of God, but still as a secondary uh, plan, work, um, God, in his wisdom, says, okay, we'll deal with the Jews later. Now we're going to focus all of our attention on the Gentiles. And we are going to redeem the Gentiles. So this is called the dispensation or the church dispensation. So God is dealing differently now with the Gentiles than he did with the Jews or Israel as a nation. This is called parenthetical covenant. Okay, so why is it called that? Because while God initially came to redeem the Jewish nation and they rejected him, God has now decided to bring in the nations and is on hold with the Jewish nation, which he will pick up later, okay? Jesus comes. Now, this is where it gets weird. Jesus comes not just once in the end times. He comes twice. The first one is a clandestine return called the rapture where he takes the church, which he's been dealing with here, to heaven, and then comes a seven-year tribulation period where God's wrath is poured out in a series of cataclysmic events, trumpets, bowls, and seals, chronologically, where 
during which the Jews are evangelized. Okay? After seven years, Jesus then physically returns, and we start what's called a millennial reign, earthly millennial reign. Okay? During that time, the, and I'm going to use this word, it's not the right word, but I'm going to use it anyway. The ascended Gentiles, who I've never figured out if they have their resurrected body or if there's some kind of intermediate state there, dwell on the earth with Christ as he reigns over a physical human Jewish nation where sin is still on the earth for 1,000 years, at the end of which Satan is loosed. He deceives the nations once again. There's a great putting down of Lucifer, the great white throne judgment, and all receive their glorified bodies at the end of the millennial reign. And then after that, I don't know. Question. Shoot. How many people here were taught that when you first came to church? All right. Okay, this is complicated, right? And so any number of these sections in here really has its own dogmatic concepts. One of the biggest being the semi or quasi-deification of the nation of Israel. Now, to a dispensationalist, if you don't say the right things with regards to the redemptive plan of the nation of Israel, you are anathema. Because they are God's first choice. We, as Gentiles, are kind of along for the ride. We're grafted in. Okay? So it becomes a very choppy concept. So there's Old Testament, there's New Covenant... There's rapture, there's second coming, there's a seven-year tribulation, there's an antichrist, there's a false prophet, there's all kinds of wild things going on in the seven-year period. Then there's a millennial reign where Jesus comes down, puts his feet on Mount Olives, the mount splits, all kinds of really kind of cool movie stuff happens. And um, Satan is finally put down there and um, uh, then... Jesus is glorified, all the saints that are, are glorified in their glorified body. I don't know at that point if the idea is, is that there is, a, there is a new heaven and a new earth, but that's kind of an undefined, okay? It really is. Okay, so this is, and, and each one of these has its own structured, uh, structured doctrine that goes around it. Okay, the other part that, so this is complicated. I drew all that to show you that. This is called dispensational uh, eschatology. Well, this is called uh, premillennial dispensationalism. Okay, even the words are, right? Okay. But we're going to talk about it. There are four major um, theories with regards to end times. There's historical premillennialism, um, premillennial dispensationalism, historic dispensationalism, premillennial dispensationalism, Praetorism, and amillennialism. Okay? There's four of those. Then on top of that, there are three or four different ways of interpreting Scripture with Revelation. So all of this matters. All of this matters. 
How you look at Revelation is going to be how you've understood Scripture. Okay? And so it's very important that if we teach Revelation correctly, we have a good hermeneutic. We understand the rest of Scripture rightly. And if we don't, then it's going to be like, where's the Ark of the Covenant? Well, isn't it like, you know, and there's just all kinds of odd things that go on. There is another one that's actually much simpler. And by the way, this is the one that I subscribe to. It is that Jesus intended everything... Here, and that the timeline of, and then this was disrupted by sin. This is the garden. Sin entered this. This was where God and man communed together. Sin disrupted that, and Scripture is one increasing panoramic picture of the glorification and the restoration of this. Okay? Pretty simple. This is the way Revelation should be understood. All right? And it will take a lot of, and we're going to have plenty of time for questions, so just so you know, the way that we're going to format the class is we're going to teach a section, then we're going to have Q&A. Okay? So write down your questions, bring them. We'll try and go over all of this stuff. It's a humongous topic. There's a lot of words. We're talking about millennium, rapture, eschatology, all of these different terms, but they all are important as we go through this, okay? Have I lost anybody yet? Well, good. We're off to a good start then. Huh? (laughs) All right. Let's talk about just some introductory comments here before we get started. Revelation, is it a puzzle or is it a picture? Is is it a puzzle or is it a picture? Is it a puzzle that we have to, that we're, we're playing with the parts, we're trying to fit them in, or is it a step back in 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 a viewing of a meta narrative? It's a picture. It's not a puzzle. And I know a lot of people would go, well, you know, it's prophetic language and it's uh, apocalyptic and we have to... So let me ask you this. When I say the four writers of the apocalypse, what do you think of? Just what comes to your mind? Doom, destruction, right? What else? Disease. So when we start talking this way, the immediate thing that we understand is, oh my gosh, apocalypse is now equated with what? Convulsions. Cataclysms. What does apocalypse really mean? An unveiling. That's what the word means. So when you read the four horses of the apocalypse, you see it's the four horses of the unveiling. What what does the word revelation mean? To throw you into a quandary? To to reveal. To make known. And Revelation 1 says exactly that. To show his servants the things that must come to pass. 
for the revelation of Jesus Christ to show. So the intention here is to enlighten, to bring comfort, to give instruction to. Let's talk about that. First thing is, can revelation be understood? Can it? Is it intended to be? Right? Okay. How many of you read it, but go away going, whatever? <laughs> Zachary, nope. Um, for a long time when I was growing up, I did. I read it, and I was, my imagination was going crazy. It was like, woo, look at this, you know. But um, anyway, according to Vern Poitras, one of the books that I have, the entire book can be summed up in one sentence. What's that one sentence? When, what do you think Revelation is about? What is Revelation about? The revealing of Jesus. I like this, what he says. That's, that's about half of it, but yeah, but it's just a little bit more fleshed out. God rules history and bring it to its consummation in Christ. And that's what Revelation is about. It is about the consummation of all things in Jesus Christ. That's what Revelation is. Okay? It's not a storybook to scare kids out of hell. It's not whatever weird science fiction novel we can come up with. It's not lion-haired flying scorpions that shoot venom at, at people. It's none of this weird, bizarre stuff that we come up with. It is the summation of God's eternal plan in the person of Jesus Christ. That's it. Okay? So we're going to focus on these things, and we're going to see how all of that language, all of the things, all that revelation is, goes toward that. And I've said there's a providential reason why the book of Revelation is at the end of the book. Because it takes all the rest of the Bible to rightly understand Revelation. Okay, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So, consider this. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy, Timothy that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That Listen to this. That the man of God, man, woman of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work, all Scripture. How many of you feel equipped for every good work upon the completion of reading Revelation? No, we don't. Because we read it wrong. We don't read it that way. But revelation has been given to equip you for every good work. It's supposed to be a book of hope. Not of terror. We as believers need to find such hope in this book. Not this idea that I've got to be compelled by what's said in Revelation to go out and save the world, otherwise, you know, something bad's going to happen or whatever. Because I'll tell you right now, and I'll just, I'll kind of tell you the end before the beginning. We're already in most of Revelation. We're already living in it. 
And this notion that we're waiting for a seven-year period for this whole book to play out is an erroneous concept. You're living in most of it right now. And most Christians are completely and totally unaware. We're, we're, what is that? That we're frogs in the boiling pan? We turn it up just ever so gradually and we don't even know that we're boiling. Most Christians are asleep because they're looking forward to something. Something out there. Something that's out there. Well, one day I get to be raptured out of here. Survey said, eh. Okay. And we're going to get to all of that eventually. But I want to leave you with the idea that before, the one point that I want you to take away from this class is Revelation is a book of hope. It is the consummation of all things in Jesus. That should be such wonderful news for you and I. Such wonderful news. Okay? Any questions so far? You guys can dialogue. This is, we're open here. We have a mic and we'll go around. So don't feel like that you can't interact. If you have a question, just lift your hand and we'll get the mic to you or a comment. Okay? The point here is to interact. Okay? All right. So John tells us that the book was written to reveal. First verse. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the thing that must soon take place. First, the book is intended to reveal Jesus Christ. And I'm going to do one lesson on the, the revelation of Jesus Christ, specifically the person. Every one of the four, whether you think there are three or four visions in the book, every one of them begins with a description of who Jesus is. Every one of them. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead who walks among the lamps, the, the, the seven lampstands. Jesus is given. And if you read it in, first, uh, in Revelation 1, read that. It's, it's, I think it's verse 3 to verse 7 or verse 4 to verse 7. Read what it said. The whole entrance about, about the, the churches and the seven churches is an introduction to who Jesus is who's redeemed us by his blood. And a lot of times when we read Revelation, we go right past that stuff. I want to get to the good stuff. Right? So. The book is about how God intends to sum up all things in Christ Jesus. Second, notice the word show. To show his servants the thing that must soon take place. Show. What does show mean? I looked it up. Because we use words. How many of you guys know we use words and we really have no idea what they mean? We just, right? Define show. Okay? To demonstrate. Here's the, here's the, number, one, the number one definition in, in, in uh, the dictionary. To cause to be visible. To cause to be visible. To display or allow to be perceived. Okay? So from the very first verse of Revelation, we have two things. To reveal Jesus Christ and to allow to be perceived the things that must happen. 
No mystery. Revelation is intended to disclose, to unveil, not to confuse or to leave concealed. Okay? Uh, so why so confusing? Why? Why is it so confusing? Okay, uh, one, one comment is that it's a dream or a vision. Okay, anybody else? Why is it confusing? His name's not Mike. <laughs> yeah, he's like, oh, who? <laughs> I can see it on his face. I don't know if people have taken the time to teach it. All right. Um, and so kind of the, the church is left on its own, like you said, to read it and to try to figure it out. Right. If you read some of the Old Testament writers, some of the older writers, some of the guys that we revere as being very, very learned men, you get things like this. I, wanted, I was asked to teach it. Some of the, like the Harvard and, and some of the Princeton theologians, I was asked to teach this class, and I, I, I told them I would refuse for 10 years. And then after I studied it for 10 years, I would try and teach it. Why? Because it's daunting. Because we don't teach it right. We don't teach it as the summation of all things in Christ. We teach it from a dispensational premillennial perspective where you've got covenants flying around and Jesus coming back and forth and back and forth and saints flying around and who knows, you know, ascended beings running around with people that can still sin and it, it, and when we start going that direction, do you want to, yeah, go ahead. And when we start running around in those, those places, all of a sudden this book becomes like, oh my gosh. If I were to ask anybody in this room, tell me what parenthetical eschatology is, there's probably one or two of you that could do it. But that's a common thing. Rick. It's also, confu Ooh, sorry. It's also confusing because everybody takes it literal. They all take right. each one of these pictures and events as a literal event or entity. Okay. So the way that the hermeneutic, the interpretation of it is the key. Yeah. So we have bad hermeneutics, bad ways of understanding this. Now, many dispensationalists, premillennial and historic, do this. Okay? And we'll talk about all those differences as we go along. But they, they read Revelation as a, listen to this, a, chrono, a literal chronology. It's a literal chronology. This happens, then this happens, then this happens, and then this happens, then this happens. Can I tell you something? Jesus being, uh, Satan being cast out of heaven by Michael and the archangels in Revelation 12. Happened when Jesus was on the earth. Can I just tell you that? Because Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Oh, Lucifer, yeah. I thought I said the wrong person. Lucifer, Satan. Yeah, that's true. I saw Lucifer fall like lightning from heaven. Right in the middle of Revelation. Okay? Here's another one. How do we interpret this word here? Last days. Are we waiting for the last days? Go ahead. 
That's a very, very common thought. Are we in the beginning? And that's, that, thank you, Tiffany. Yeah, that's, uh, are we in the beginning of the last days? When did they start? Are we waiting for them? Do the last days start at the seven-year tribulation? When do the last days start? make a case that they started at the time of Christ because he said a few days hence. Yep. I just gave it away. Pentecost. This is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days. When does Jesus reign over the earth? In a future 1,000-year physical manifestation as he returns? Or is he reigning now? He's reigning now. And he must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. All right? So these are important things. So we even our language about last days, we're looking towards something that we're not in. And consequently, we miss the relevancy of what we're living in right now. Right now. You are in the throes of the last days. You are in it. And the church sleeps looking for something still yet to come. Excuse me, Dean. Yes, um I, I specified because uh, about the Lucifer because there are um, Lucifer and yeah, as most of you know that was it, he was Lucifer God's highest angel before all this stuff happened and he and then God changed his name to Satan and because there are I'm specifying that because there are a lot of people who are Luciferian, into Luciferian worship and Luciferian churches, and they think it's okay to be um, worshiped. There are a lot of followers of Lucifer, and these days, especially in Hollywood, there's a lot of people that are... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to specify. Yeah, that's fine. Thank you. Um, well, yes, and we are seeing a rise of satanic... And Luciferian worship, we are seeing that. I mean, there's, what, what is it, Pennsylvania, where they're trying to erect a statue uh, next to, like, the Ten Commandments and stuff like that. So you have all kinds of bizarre things that are going on anyway. All right, so these are some of the things. Let me go, let me give you another, an additional list of why Revelation becomes very, very problematic. First thing, we read Revelation as a standalone book. We read it by itself. That's why I call this introduction class the, meta, the eschatological meta-narrative of Scripture. You can't read Revelation unless you know the Bible. How many, and some of you I've already told this, so don't answer. How many references to the Old Testament is in the one book of Revelation alone? How many references? <laughs> You're guessing. <laughs> 5,000. Anybody? 49, there's a good guess. Sure, why not? How many? Anybody else? 
How many? A hundred. Those are good guesses, right? Yeah. 550. There are over 500 references to Old Testament imagery in the single book of Revelation. Single book. There's more references to the Old Testament in that one book of Revelation than there are in any other book in the New Testament, and probably many combined. And yet we read it with, here it is, ready for this? Dispensational lenses. We're New Covenant Christians. We live in the New Testament. The Old Testament is complete in Jesus Christ, so we don't bother with it much. Dispensationalism. What does that do for reading the book of Revelation? Makes it really hard. Because the references that John uses are now considered no longer pertinent. Are no longer applicable because of the covenant. We're now new covenant versus the old covenant. Can I tell you point blank that to break the Bible up like that is dangerous? It will greatly, dramatically diminish your Christianity. The, the statement is this, and I love this statement. It takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. You cut out the Old Testament. How do you think that God is going to judge the earth? How do you think he's going to do that? By what standard? Say it, say it out loud. The law. Is the law then done away with? No. Why do we say that? It's not done away with. It's accomplished in Christ. Okay? We, being in Christ, are not lawless. We have fulfilled the law because of our place in Christ Jesus. These are important concepts. These are necessary understandings. Because Scripture does this. It's not broken up into a whole bunch of disjointed covenants that really have no connection back to one another. Okay? So we have a problem with um, reading Revelation. Um, we t interpret the re rest of Scripture according to Revelation instead of interpreting Revelation according to the redemptive narrative of Scripture. So we read Revelation and we go, oh, well... Instead of, or, or, and then we, we understand, oh, well, the elect, you know, this and this and this about this, so this is what the Bible must mean back here. No. We read in Revelation, go, oh, that's what the Bible means back here when it says this in Revelation. See, it's, we get it kind of backwards, all right? Um, Rick has already commented on it. Hermeneutics is one of the big ones why we don't understand rightly. Um, it's dispensational versus covenantal theology is a big one, and we'll talk about all of those later. Uh, what is our understanding of prophecy? When I say the word prophecy, just start throwing out what you understand. If I said, we're going to talk about prophecy in the morning, um, actually, let's, let's do it that way because that could mean the gift of prophecy, and I don't mean it that way. 
We're going to talk about prophetic literature next week. We're going to talk about the books of the Bible that are prophetic. What do you think? What's the immediate thing that comes to your mind? End times. Old, okay, you start seeing individual books, okay? Did you know that the whole book, the whole of Scripture is eschatological in nature? The whole of the book, okay? And we limit prophecy to a few books that we don't read all the time. When was the last time you heard a really rip-roaring sermon on, on Ezekiel? Not often. Boy, there's some good stuff in Ezekiel. So, you know, these are, these are things that we, uh, we need to understand. That the, and we'll talk about that here in just a second, the, meta, the whole overview of Scripture. Um, definition of terms. If I say Daniel's 70 weeks, what do you think? Do you guys know that there's like a 70-week imagery in Daniel? What, what do you think it talks about? Times, times and a half. Right? So we don't, and we already talked about it, our definition of last days. We always think of something going out there, right? Um, misunderstanding of the purpose of the book. We've already talked about that. Christ is the Lord of history. When considering eschatology, many believers become disoriented because they focus on a plethora of individual themes. Like millennialism. Rapture. And those themes are kind of standalone dogmatic concepts that we don't really tie together to anything. What is the millennial? Why do we talk about the millennium? Do we talk about it because it's a period of time? Or do we talk about it because it has to do with the reign of Jesus? Right? We talk about it in the connecting fabric of who Jesus Christ is. Then we have reason but the idea of trying to understand each one of these individual topics as a standalone theme is, is hard to do. It's hard to do. It creates your own problems, right? So, all right. Um, all of God's intentions and ways, past, present, and future, are centered on the incarnation of, of the Son, all of them. Just as Christ fulfills the Old Testament pro promises, Christ also guarantees the future consummation of all those promises. By his resurrection, ascension, and sending of the Holy Scriptures in Pentecost, events which mark the beginning of the end times. Uh, these events also signal that Christ has been given all authority in heaven and earth and will reign or reigns now until all things are subject to him. The biblical revelation of the future then and this is an important key, write this down. The biblical revelation of the future then is intended to do what? Anybody? It's the primary intention of any revelatory book. To fix our attention on the person of Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. Okay? Yeah. The biblical revelation of the future, then, is intended to fix our attention always on Christ. 
The second coming of Christ is the event toward which all of history is moving. It is the event that gives meaning and consummation to the present and to all of history. And the biblical record in its entirety looks forward to the coming of Christ. Now, here's another thing. We talked about this. Eden lost, Eden glorified. Eden lost, Eden glorified. I got about two more minutes. and Well, five more minutes and I'm going to stop. Eden lost, Eden glorified. This is one of the primary reasons that we have a hard time with the book of Revelation, because we don't understand it in this term. We don't read Revelation with the attention of redeeming Eden. How many of you have read Revelation thinking, oh, this is God redeeming Eden? (laughs) Not very many, right? So to understand the biblical promises of the future, we have to go back to the original intention. What is the whole story of salvation about? Just in one word, what is the whole story of redemption about? I just said it. Redemption. What is it to redeem? What does that mean? To buy back, to restore, to bring back to its original purpose. Okay. It is the intended communion with mankind that God has promised by means of redemption to restore and glorify. All right. Consider, just in your own time this week, consider how closely the new heaven and the new earth described as the city of heaven come down out of heaven resembles a garden. It's a re-imaging of this. They're not just simply restored, they're glorified, though. For a good, good example. And he will be the light. He will, that will know, he will be our light that will no longer need. Will, will there be need for a son? Because... Creation will be glorified. All right, let's talk about this just real quick, briefly. What do I mean here? What was the purpose of Eden? What was the purpose here? What, what did God create man for? To commune. Okay. What was Eden like? Have you ever thought about this? And God walked with man in the cool of the evening. Do you think that's just a pictorial language of some kind of bizarre relationship that we can't even fathom or do you think that might actually be a true statement? What do you think? Anybody? So for, for man and God to walk together in Eden in relationship what was what had to happen? What is different about that than what we experience now? What's different? Well, it's a three-letter word. There you go. What happens when sin is injected into this? Separates. Creates a barrier. All right? 
So when God came down to see Adam, where are you? What was what was what happened to this relationship? Adam, where are you? Where was Adam? Anybody try that? Just curious. Tried to hide from God. Right? No, doesn't work. Huh? <laughs> it's a quick short. Can't play hide and seek with God. Right? Very first thing that happens when sin enters is that there's the, 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 the destruction of the communion between man and God. And if you read the, the Genesis account, you see God slowly moving farther and farther away from man. God is pushed farther and farther outside of Eden. East of Eden. Further outside of Eden. Tower of Babel. They're spread out away from Eden. That's a picture language of God. And then God at the Tower of Babel is no longer walking on the earth. Where is he? He's He's retracted. Let us now go down and see what they're doing. So the gulf between man and God is now wide. Right? So God comes down and he says, how many of you know what the Proto-Evangelium is? No? Genesis 3.15. All right. What does Genesis 3.15 say? Anybody off the top of your head? And your seed will crush his head and he will bruise his heel. The proto-evangelium is just a theological term that means the original, the first gospel. Genesis 3.15. It is the course from, that Scripture is now on. From that point on, from Genesis 3.15 to Revelation 22, the end of it, is the story of Jesus crushing the serpent's head. That's revelation. And when it's all said and done, Eden, where God walked with man in a garden, which, by the way, was a temple, because wherever God and man commune together is a temple, right? What did Jesus call himself? The temple. Why? Because from this moment on, you will see the angels Ascend and descend upon the Son of Man because he has now broken the barrier that separated man from God and they are now in communion within him. Wow. Wow. But one day that spiritual communion that we have with God will become reality on the earth. And I looked and behold the new, the new Jerusalem, the city of God, adorned like a What? bride came down out of heaven and they will the saints of God will behold his face they will be once again in communion revelation is the consummation of what was originally intended okay so over the next however many weeks this is where we're going It's not a mysterious book. It's not a funky kids thing that makes really cool coloring books. 
It is the consummation of all things in the person of Jesus Christ. It is his victory. And it should be a source of great hope because one day this is going to be what it's all about. Okay? Father, we're grateful. We ask that you would instill once again in us the hope of glory. That our hearts once again will long for and look toward the fulfillment of the things that you have planned for those who love you and are called by your name that we can't see or even imagine in our minds. But bring it to our ref reflection all the time. In Jesus' name, amen.